This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. Today on the show, we'll take a look at some of the cold-blooded animals that can be found in Mississippi with two friends of the show. Our favorite backyard biologist, Joe McGee, joins us to talk about some of the frogs he's seeing and hearing this time of year. And also in studio, it's Tom Mann. Well, he'll give us an update about his work with salamanders on the Natchez Trace. Dr. Major has not joined us yet, but we hope to have him here ready for your pet questions today. So join our conversation this morning. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. We always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. We've got uh, another friend of the program. John Davis is on the line. So let's uh, see what John has for us this morning. Good morning, John. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Well, thank you. It's the season to stop thinking about or to start thinking about maybe books as Christmas gifts for this year. Uh, I have the honor of uh, reading books for the uh, print impaired for MPB. And some time ago, I read a book I would very much like to recommend to your listenership. Uh, it's called The Feather Thief. It's a crime caper such as you have uh, never encountered with villains that sort of outdo anything in James Bond. It, it's a homage to natural history museums, like the beautiful one in Jackson, Mississippi, what they guard what their importance is, and what we lose if they are underfunded and and disappear. The plot is really, if you like crime capers and natural history as much as I do, fascinating. In the 1990s, a young man broke into the British Museum outside London and, and stole a lot of 19th century bird skins, including Wallace's Birds of Paradise. Uh, The author was a detective who tracked this down and found what we were dealing with again. This is hilarious and awful. was a cabal of rich, obsessive, uh, fly type uh, fishing fly tires who were obsessed with the idea of a tying authentic 19th century fishing flies using the feathers of extinct birds. No kidding, this is real. Their minions have been breaking into museums all around the country and and taking ancient bird skins. But those ancient feathers, they pointed out, in addition to being irreplaceable in the study of evolution, also are irreplaceable in studying pollutants in the atmosphere, 
climate change and all sorts of things that become parts of feathers. The first part of the book, which has to do with feathers and the 19th century craze for bird feathers, which almost caused mass extinctions and how it went its way. And again, the importance of museums like the one in Jackson is something we all should read. All right, uh, John, thanks for the recommendation. Uh, tell us the name of the book again. Uh, the uh, Feather Thief. It, again, it's a wild crime caper, and it's absolutely factual, and it points out the absolute importance of natural history museums and what they guard. All right. Thanks, John, for Hi, John. the call and the recommendation. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're trying to connect with Dr. Troy Major. Uh, in the meantime, we can start visiting with our guests for the hour. In studio with me is uh, Tom Mann. Tom, always good to have you on the show. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, I, I um, need sleep. It's been a long season on the trade so far. <laughs> so to, to sort of summarize, and I think I've got this right from previous visits, uh, there are some certain salamanders that part of their life cycle have to get from point A to point B. And in our area, that uh, has to cross the Natchez Trace. So you lead efforts to help the salamanders get to where they need to go without being bothered by traffic or anything that would occur on the trace. Is that kind of a quick summary of, of uh, what you do? Correct. Two of those are the marbled and the spotted salamanders, one of which has already moved. The marbled spots will move after Christmas. And those are terrestrial uh, air breathers. But they breathe in water. Or actually, they, they, the marbles move to places that will flood later. They mate, lay eggs. Water comes in. The female leaves. The eggs um, hatch. The larvae swim away. Uh, the one Devin I spend the most time on is totally terrestrial. And folks, until we started our work, folks didn't realize that they needed to migrate. These do. Uh, these live. This is Webster salamander. Lives in rock outcrops. Uh, they're scattered in two dozen places in Mississippi. The trace, they're in, they're in limestone outcrops, Glendon limestone outcrops. In our case, just about 100 meters to the uh, west of the trace. They spend all summer there. This is the opposite of Persephone's um, life history. They spend the summer underground for about six months, uh, not eating. The females lay eggs, guard the eggs, those hatch. Um, but they, they emerge topside when things cool off and spend the next four, five, six months, um, foraging the leaf litter, fattening up again, mating, uh, getting ready to store nutrients for that long dry spell in the summer, then they head back. So they migrate away from the outcrop in the fall, this year kind of late because of the drought, and then they move back toward it in the late winter and spring. But this was un, uh, it was not anticipated by uh, biologists. But we've worked in this for the past 10 years. This is, our, I think, our 11th season um, and we put up we put up a hundred yard hundred yeah roughly hundred yard silt fences on both sides of the trace to intercept animals. It just slows them up. If we're out there, we can pick them off the fence, photograph them, camera across the road, release them, and hope to see them again in three or four much much fatter. Um, that's the short story. So it's the bucket brigade. So in some instances, you actually scoop the salamanders up into buckets to help them get Correct. across with, the trace. With marbled and with spotted salamanders, we get the adults of those moving out respectively in the. Um, in the fall with marbles and in the spots, mainly from January through um, uh, March, we'll pick up the kids, the young, as they, they've been two months in the breeding areas uh, swimming. It's the biphasic life history. The kids that just uh, come out of the water disperse, 
and, and enter the roadway to find themselves upland habitat. I picked up 403 hours, spotted, little spotted, uh, young of the year spotted salamanders a couple of years ago on a Sunday morning in the rain, 403 hours, crossing the road, heading to make themselves homes in the forest uh, uphill of where they were hatched. And so you mentioned the the, <clears throat> the fences. Is that is then that's just some sort of an obstacle so that it's easier to kind of locate them and and, and again help them across the these trace. Are, these are standard sill fences, black sill fences. Everyone's seen them. I said this year I, I couldn't just hammer them into the ground. I had to drill holes in the hard ground back in October for the um, for the the um, posts that go in every th- uh, three yards or so and hammer those in. So it was quite an ordeal to put those in this year. Much much slower than usual. But when it rained. Things softened up, and they, what the animals hit those, they just, they they radiate out from the rock outcrop. They hit the fence. Uh, we originally thought they would go laterally and, in, and into um, little traps we place there, little um, funnel traps, but that's not what they do. They hit the fence and just go straight up and over. If we're not there uh, when traffic's uh, late in the late in the night, when traffic is has uh, abated, they can cross the fence, jump over uh, across the road, and um, and do what they need to do on their own. But when traffic's bad, we need to be there to intercept them. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Major, we hear, is actually out of the country, so he won't be joining us this week. But we do have two guests to visit with us. If you have a question for Tom and his work with salamanders or information about salamanders in general, also, if you're seeing something in and around your backyard, uh, our friend Joe McGee might be able to help as well. So you want to join the conversation, you can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Tom, you've mentioned a couple of the, the, the species that you work with, the spotteds, the marbles, and the websters. If you would, give us an idea of, you know, size and, and, and what these little guys look like. Okay. Uh, let me start with the websters first. Uh, these are small. Uh, they're three inches long at best. Uh, they're lungless like most of our salamanders, Mo- well, all the plethodontic salamanders. They're lungless. And you would wonder why. Well, f- they never choke to death <laughs> eating an earthworm or whatever else they're eating. Uh, doesn't get in the way, but they need wet, moist skin to um, respire, so they move in wet leaf litter and on moist nights. Interestingly, the um, the spotted salamander and the marble salamander, both of which have lungs, move on wet nights too. Again, toward breeding areas or away from breeding areas, and they do have lungs, but they like they really prefer to move in a rain, or right after or in a rain. Websters will move on under a full moon, under a bright sky, if the leaf litter is wet. So we have. Again, I am sleep deprived. Uh, <laughs> visualize this Thanksgiving night. We had a bunch of volunteers out there on the trace. Two or three of us, uh, Quentin from the museum, Quentin Fairchild, and I knelt for three or four hours on the roadside taking pictures of the salamanders brought to us by other volunteers picking them off the uh, fence. Sarah Buffington sat to my left and took notes. Uh, Deb worked the fences. Uh, Chris, Dr. Chris Norman worked the fences. L.A. Polzer worked the fences. Uh, Ann Culpepper and two of her, three of her relatives who worked the fences. They brought salamanders to us in scoops. Uh, we took notes, photographed, and then sent them back out to the opposite side of the road from which they were captured. Again, we hope to see them again in three or four months. So um, we've talked a little bit here about the Bucket Brigade. If are you, I imagine, I would hope maybe, that you are you always looking for volunteers to help out? Uh, we almost had 
too many that night. Yeah, we always need we on a busy night, and that was a busy night. We had over 120 animals um, in the four hours we were out there. That was a busy night. We've had busier nights. We've had nights with 500 animals in four or five hours, and that's just that's overwhelming. But again, at that point, when it gets that busy, I start taking pictures of each one, and we just carry them across the road. The, but that's the bottom line is to keep them from getting across. These are all these are mainly adults. We were some second years too, um, which are not adults. Oh, I didn't. I didn't mention why they're moving. These are moving probably in part. They're not moving necessarily to mate because we're getting both the year the hatchlings, and the second years which are not mature. They move too, so it's not about mating. It may in part be about food resources. If you stay in one place, the outcrop is really small. If you stay there, come topside, same little leaflet and eat. You got you may run out of resources. So we we have assumed they're spreading out in part to avail themselves of more small invertebrates than the leaf litter. But Deb also thinks that it may be to avoid predation. Uh, and if you all stay in one place, it makes it easier for, say, a, a room of uh, a, a posse of turkeys to come in and mop up. If you're spread out, it's going to be less likely that you that that you all get um, that everyone in the bunch is going to be uh, ingested. So, and we see a lot of tail damage. I can't blame that all on turkeys, but I'm going to blame some of them on turkeys. So it's it's the great food chain. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with two guests this morning, Tom Mann and Joe McGee. You can always email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Visiting with Tom Mann about his work with salamanders. And, Tom, you were mentioning uh, some of the volunteers you work with. And as any good uh, person who has volunteers that uh, help them out, you always want to make sure you mention everyone. So you wanted another person that you wanted to mention. And in reciting my long list of assistants, on, this was on Thanksgiving night, so I want folks to visualize this. They're mainly sitting over, <laughs> over tables of turkey at home. We're out there in the rain four and five hours on uh, on Thanksgiving night. All these volunteers, I left out Colleen Grick. She's been great. She's been a long-time, long-term volunteer, knows what to write down, knows where to go. And she's just she's great. So we we need long term volunteers. And if we work in the fence, and you've got and there are spotted salamanders crossing to the south or marble salamanders, it's good to have other folks to walk down and get those too. So yeah, we do, we we do use regular volunteers. Uh, but I guess it's important to stress that when you're working on the Natchez Trace with the volunteers, that you have proper authority, and you're not you're not encouraging people to grab a bucket on any night and just run out there looking for these creatures. Very good. I think Diana would appreciate that. She's been running our permits now for a long time. The trace has been great. In fact, pretty, they may be renovating part of their road in the within the next several years, and we may attempt to install some some sort of tech fixes that can um, alleviate some of the t- salamander mortality on the trace. But that's is yet unresolved and decided, but we're, we're working on it. But, they, but the trace has been great. We wear a protective vest. We have permits. We're, we're covered. We try to stay out of the way. So it's uh, been a mild winter so far. Any effect on the salamanders? Yeah, as I said earlier, we had a drought. We had a long late summer drought, and they were later, much later coming up than usual. Some in some seasons, we'll get them on the, the have moved from the rocks and out to the trace by as early as Halloween. This year, we saw that we got the first animals at the road fence on the in mid-November, and then it really picked up from Thanksgiving for the next four or five days. We've moved over 300 across since since Thanksgiving. Uh, so it's, it's frogs and salamanders today, Tom, and we're going to talk to. Uh, to uh, to uh, Joe about uh, frogs. Do you see other creatures like frogs when you're doing the the oh, bucket brigade? Always, and we hear the same. So Joe is he's sent tapes out already of recordings of peepers this year. 
they're really not. They're just now starting course, and they've been doing what I call warm-up calls for the past month in the woods. But they are beginning to call now near near flooded areas, and I think the trace at least they were beaten out by a little bit by what we call the Cajun chorus frog. We're hearing trilling from the uh, ditches just south of one of our fences, and and just started the other night. So that's great. We've had those for the past ten years or so. What are some of the other creatures that you might see in in amongst the salamanders? Oh, again, we get all the uh, any of the frogs. You might we don't get where we don't get Joe's um, uh, speedfoot toads. We don't get those. We get a lot of, and we don't get his southern toads. We do get uh, the local phyllus toads. We get southern upper frogs. We get more pickle frogs than Joe does. Joe's mainly sees them as dust bunnies under his um, bed, but we. We get them on the trace, and not in large numbers, but we hear them calling. They're there, see them regularly. Lots of people, lots, of, and we get uh, Joe gets these. We get squirrel tree frogs. We get green tree frogs in numbers. We get Cope's gray tree frog in numbers. Those aren't calling yet. That'll be much later. Um, you mentioned, I think that this is year eleven of doing this. Is that right? Yeah, we're yeah we have good good data. We have this. There's no data set like this. <laughs> We've done a, we and, have tens of thousands of photographs of these salamanders, top and bottom, all sides, and we've learned so much about them. Uh, I got to retire to get this done and published, but we could write a book. We need to write a book. Uh, take us back to the beginning. What, what was the genesis for the whole thing? Well, when the, when the northern leg of the trace and southern leg of the trace were spliced in 2006 through West Clinton, that we anticipated a traffic surge. And I was told at that point by the late Andy Graham that there were spotted salamanders crossing just south of I, crossing the trace just south of I-20 toward a, an old stock pond. Um, there's a pull-off, a paved pull-off on the trace right there. And they were, they were crossing the road right above that. We started there in 2006. So we're moving adult spotted salamanders from their upland dwelling habitat toward their breeding habitat at the stock pond. And then we'd move them across the road again when they moved um, back to the to the west. And we started there, and we began to expand south a couple of years later. And at that time, Webster's had just been discovered at the trace, and we didn't find them. A guy I wrote permits for had found them uh, beneath the—I didn't even know there was rock at the trace. I, I, was at, I had walked the road for years at night and did not know there was rock there. Rock is fundamental to the occurrence of spots. I'm sorry, of Webster's. Anyway, so we're walking that stretch uh, just south of Lindsay Creek to rescue spots, and we kept finding Webster's in the road. And the book said at that time that they don't migrate. So we would put them back out of harm's way on the side from which we thought they came and turn around and you'd see them in the road again. And that was the genesis of our of our Webster's project was it was an accident. But we saw enough of that that we thought something else was going on. And one winter I'd gotten sick, couldn't drive south to um, South Florida to visit with my wise folks, and I stayed up and played in the woods over Christmas, and I began to find little hatchling Websters at each of the outcrops out there, and we put two and two together and said, okay, so the animals crossing the road in March must be heading toward the outcrops where they are going to rendezvous, go under, lay eggs, and come up again, and we should see and not we should see an equivalent movement back across the trace in the fall when we'd not yet, we'd not previously walked the trace in the fall, and sure enough, um, we saw just that. So it was classic scientific method, um, observations, conjecture, hypothesis, test, observation. So that was neat. That was a while back. And I think we can bring Joe McGee into the conversation. Joe, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, and we're talking about salamanders with Tom Mann. Uh, any salamander observations in your area? Yes, there ha- I have had a few. Uh, I went out 
Thanksgiving night to see if I might find some salamanders. Uh, it was raining here in my area. That's over in East Central Mississippi, I-20 corridor, you might say. And uh, I saw marbled salamanders on the road, got them off. I saw uh, newts, the, the central newts, causing a beautiful little, little rusty red salamander. Uh, but mainly I saw frogs that night. I had a surprise. I found a, a eastern spadefoot on, near the edge of the road. That's one I certainly did not expect. Now, that's not a salamander. That's a, a frog. So, yeah, uh, on mild, rainy nights, or mild, wet nights, you might say, that's when I look for amphibians. And I think anyone can, can uh, find them if they, if they try in their own area. And from the previous visits, I know it's it's probably easier to hear frogs maybe than to see them sometimes. That's right. That's exactly right. And they haven't really, right now, the frogs are fairly silent. They really haven't started calling. They're, the cool season uh, frogs will be calling in, in a couple of weeks, full force. One night, say, between Christmas and New Year's, somewhere along in there, maybe after New Year's, I'll step out right at, on my carport, right at sunset, and in every direction, I'll hear a loud chorus of spring peepers. It's just, you know, it's just like magic. It's right on schedule. It's, it's a sound I really like to hear. I've actually, I heard one spring peeper, just one single individual calling Thanksgiving night when I was out looking for salamanders. Uh, and I've heard one chorus frog behind my house. And that's really unusual. Chorus frogs are not normally in my area. I have to go, you know, somewhere to, to hear, see and hear them. But I, ha- I heard one... Um, just oh, about a week ago. I'm going to try to get a recording of that. I, and they're welcome. I hope they'll move in in large numbers. Uh, yeah, so essentially, we, we always love to hear that you, and I, we're going to get to later in the show some frog calls that you brought along with us. Tom, uh, when we talk about salamanders, do do they make calls? What sort of, how do they communicate? Nope, nothing no, silent. They're, they're very nope, silent. Nope, okay. silent. Silent. And I, again, I'm hearing, I think, maybe more frogs than Joey is right now. But I have to add that his newts are prettier than ours. <laughs> They're a little bit brighter. They're just, but I like our newts. And we get newts on the trace as well. Um, but his newts are a little bit more attractive. And there's something interesting about newts. You, I have found them on my back porch in June. Just one. I don't mean throngs of them. But So you don't have to necessarily wait. And, of course, I wasn't expecting it. You don't have to wait until cool, wet weather uh, arrives. They and one time I was, you know, mowing in my yard and I moved a stone to so I could mow over the area where the stone was and underneath the stone. It was in hot, dry weather. There was a, a newt. They they breed in our pond, as do marble salamanders, so we get those as well. And we get newts in our garage, Joe. Yeah, yeah. That was occasionally. It's so, a beautiful little salamander. I just mentioned this so that folks listening will will keep an eye out for um, for this sort of thing. You never know what's in your backyard. So, Tom, do we know how salamanders communicate if, they, if they're if they silent? Oh, gee, um, chemical cues. Okay. Oh, uh, taste, uh, osmo, os, you know, it's, it's going to be, I'm going to say smelling, but chem, they're, they're monitoring chemical cues for sure. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with two guests this morning, Tom Mann and Joe McGee. You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So as I mentioned, uh, Joe uh, brought some uh, co- uh, co- uh, frog calls that we're going to listen to in just a minute, and it brought up a thought uh, t- with Tom and salamanders. And, Tom, you mentioned that they're they're silent, but that they uh, communicate via chemical um, 
tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, and the male, actually, both sexes have have um, little protuberances from the anterior end of the jaw, which probably relate to that, to detection of chemical cues. Um, and we see them in non-random patterns on the fences. Deb and I are convinced of this. More often, I mean, many nights you'll, you'll have hot spots on the fences. You may have more than one animal coming up at the same time in the same place or sequentially in the name, in the in relatively close procession we'll see multiple animals on the fence in the same place it may be the same sexes maybe different sexes maybe different age classes but they we're we're fairly convinced that they are they are following someone for some reason uh, again it may be adults and second years which aren't breeders so it's not necessarily not even usually we think about sex but they're just they're following a conspecific as they radiate out away from the outcrop um so we've got a call to get to. Our friend Sue from Beaumont is on the line. Um, good morning, Sue. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. I, I'd like to ask a question. I've often wondered, uh, are salamanders, uh, were, are they in the fossil record like dinosaur type? Were they ever bigger than they are now? And why do you think nature uh, chose frogs and, and salamanders and some of my favorite critters to to preserve themselves, you know, by freezing and not other creatures. Why, why, why do you suppose that is? And what is that substance that keeps them from freezing? So do you know, Tom, uh, are salamanders in the fossil record? Are they that? Uh... Oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. They go, and they, in fact, frogs and salamanders are, or are branched off from the vertebrate family tree long before our kind did. So they are, in fact, they may, I had some I was confronting a surgery one time and I was trying to tell folks what I did in the winter and the folks gathered around me um, asked if, oh, the salamanders are like lizards. I said, no, actually, we're more closely related to lizards than salamanders are. Again, they branched off that family tree way, way, way back. Um, and I can't answer the question other than, um, uh, for example, wood frogs uh, won't freeze, maybe peepers either. So they can, they can, um, they can, whatever they can handle it, they can handle the, um, the cold weather. Our little guys are mainly not moving if the temperature is much below 40. They really slow down by 45, but they are winter animals. And Deb and I have often found them in the leaf litter, deep in the leaf litter with frost beneath that. We're hunting for them uh, to get um, genetic samples in Alabama, for example. So they are, they're tough. But what, is that, what is that chemical that keeps I don't them know the, I, mean, I don't know the name of the chemical. Um, I, I'm just curious that but, uh, why, why those creatures are considered so so important by nature that that they would be saved from freezing, you know. Uh, Joe, any thoughts on how these creatures stay around in the cold weather? They essentially have antifreeze. Yeah, <laughs> uh, something but, like that. Okay, that doesn't tell you much. But and one aspect of the antifreeze is actually glucose. You know, sugar. Glucose is a sugar. Sugar. Would would work as an antifreeze in our vehicles, except for the fact that it, uh, if it gets too hot, it burns, right? It scorches. We can't use sugar. Sugar's a good antifreeze. Uh, wow. But we can't use, you know, we can't use that in our vehicles for, for obvious reasons. Uh, but but it is a compl- I've read up on that, and it's a complicated biochemical process. But it involves glucose in some of the amphibians. All right, Sue, thanks for your call. So, um, <clears throat> Joe, if we could, you mentioned a couple of uh, frogs already, and we'll go back here. The first one you mentioned, and let's uh, start out by listening to the call of the chorus frog. All right, well, 
<laughs> it's been an interesting day on Creature Comforts this morning. <laughs> we won't have the call of the chorus frog, but Joe, if you would, tell us what do chorus frogs look like? Well, chorus frog they're small, and they're active at night, like so many frogs, and so they're difficult to see. A small, and when I say small, they probably average an inch in length, and a gray with... Uh, darker, almost black markings on their back. They're beautiful little frogs. Okay. Uh, Joe, you can describe the call. Wait, I think actually, uh, let's let's try again. So I think uh, we've got the chorus frog call. Yep, there that's it, it. yay. That's the one, Joe, that sounds like the the finger being run down the comb, I guess. Yep, is that, that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. To me, it's one of the most pleasing yeah. sounds in nature. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing choruses of those you know, soon, as I mentioned, say after Christmas well, or around New Year's. Uh, they'll be calling in large numbers. Yeah, that's yeah uh, I've heard one behind my house, just one lone individual. I heard one, and, was tri- and his call was, I think, triggered by... Uh, a pickup truck blasting by the fences above the speed limit. Um, but it was loud, but that will trigger calls yeah, of, of frogs, right. and it did. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I, I was just going to mention there, there's more than one species of chorus frog, obviously. I and it's the taxonomy of them is sort of complicated and in a state of flux. But it would folks down in way down in South Mississippi, the coastal counties, would hear a, one called a southern chorus frog. I call the ones I hear upland chorus frogs. Tom has the apparently has the Cajun chorus frogs, and, and so it goes. Do, do we know how they got the name chorus frog? I don't. I, I can't say for sure. Uh, maybe it sounds uh, like a church well, choir, maybe? All, all these no. things are chorusing. <laughs> all these things are chorusing. That's right. Uh, going, so. I don't know, but it's one, uh, to me it's one of the most pleasing sounds in all of nature. I love hearing chorus frogs. Uh, but my favorite call is the American toad, which we don't have locally. Um, Joe's southern toad is not too far off, but this, the a February call of the American toad is breeding. Yes, and that's on my list of, of frogs to record. I hope in 2023 I want to record the uh, and photograph the uh, American toad. But they're they're a little bit tricky to find in Mississippi. American toads. Uh, and the chorus frog, I've even heard that I, in the park that I walk in in Pearl. And it's funny because you you know you hear them and then you stop and you look and they're they're so good at camouflage you hardly ever see them. But it is. Uh, as you yeah. mentioned, Joe, n- nice to hear them. Let's yes, let, let me challenge you, Kevin. Try uh, sometime we have a little <laughs> extra time. Try to try to see one without disturbing it. You'll see what I'm up against when I get <laughs> photograph them. Please do that. All right. Uh, <laughs> the other one, then maybe we can get the call on this too. Is the uh, the spring peeper? Yes. And, and like the course frog, Joe, these really are. I mean, I think most. Folks have probably heard either oh, one yeah. or both of these, but tell us, talk a little bit about the spring peeper for us. Yes, I was just about to say I would venture to state that almost everybody in Mississippi has heard spring peepers, but they may not have stopped to to consider what they what they're li- what they're hearing, what they're actually listening to. Uh, and on occasion, I have asked somebody, "What, what is that?" and they will say crickets. They, 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 they think it's some kind of insect. But let me just mention it. The Walmart in Newton, when you're in the parking lot at the Walmart in Newton in the wintertime, say January, February, you can hear chorus frogs. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, spring peepers. I don't know where the body of water is that they're calling from. I, you know, I don't have access to all that property. I don't, I don't necessarily want to. I don't need to know. But somewhere around the Walmart in Newton, 
there's a depression full of rainwater, and spring pe- every year I hear them. Now, it's r- kind of dry right now. I bet that uh, depression is dry. I, I don't think it has water in it right now, but they wouldn't be calling anyway this early. Um, would you ever be in a place where you could hear both chorus frogs and spring peepers? Yes, oh, yes, yeah. uh, for sure. Uh, I could take you to several places uh, within two or three miles of my house as the crow flies, uh, where you can hear both. And on really good nights when it's, you know, it's a mild night in the winter, wet, maybe it's been drizzling, raining a little bit, you can stop at a, at a depression, a pond or, you know, a woodland depression where they're calling, and they'll be calling so loudly, so many at one time, that it's almost a crackling sound. You cannot make out the individual amphibians calling. It's, it's, it's a great, it, I think it's wonderful to hear that. It's, and I look forward to it the way I look forward to, say, the first Purple Martin in the spring. It's a, it's a great thing to hear. We get uh, both species calling at our trace site, and they're calling from actually one of the spotted salamander breeding basins. At this, and they call concurrently. You may hear peepers, chorus frogs, leopard frogs, maybe a pickle frog calling from the same place in the same night. They may be in different spots of the basin. They probably are, but yeah, that's that's yeah. a spot that already has spotted salamander eggs in it. So, Joe, are are these frogs not somewhat competing for the same resources, and, and do they get along? They... <laughs> They, well, they they must get along because we still have them, right? They're not. Uh, they if frogs tend to eat whatever they can see moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, insects, invertebrates, that sort of thing. I would think a leopard leopard frogs are one of our largest frogs. They're much much larger than a spring peeper or a chorus frog, so they would go for larger prey, presumably. Uh, but but. <laughs> I uh, they're, they're, the spring the, say the spring peepers are com- the males are competing for the females right mm-hmm. for other you know spring peeper females they're competing with their own species I, I I can't really address whether you know whether they're competing for the same resource or not the different species well I, I, it makes sense they've got more important things to worry about than the chorus frogs they're trying to get that mate of uh, another spring peeper I that's right but I, I might mention, though, and I'm t- I think Tom would agree, spring peepers and, and uh, chorus frogs are about the same size. Yep, yep. They average about an inch long, but they don't look anything alike. If you see see them side by side, they're really very different in and, appearance. And they, can, and they can both climb, although they don't have as large a toe pad as do the other uh, members of the um, tree frog family. Right, right. But they can climb so they can get above where leopard frogs feed, for example, uh, which don't climb. So let's. Uh, you mentioned the the leopard, uh, southern leopard frog. I think that's a call we've got as well. So let's uh, listen to that one. The volume's low, but it's kind of a. It's almost kind of a clucking type of sound. Is that right, Joe? That's right, Arch. Sometimes Chuckle. I describe it as a chuckling sound. It's it's low in low frequency. Which is nothing like a spring peeper, which is a. Uh, very high frequency sound it's a low frequency and low in volume you really have to uh you know strain your ears so to speak to to oh hello (laughs) (laughs) what now what which one is that that's leopard okay so leopard now other things calling too okay what's that squirrel tree frogs in the background yes all right all right that's that's very froggish. <laughs> All right. I don't. I don't think you'll hear uh, squirrel tree frogs uh, this time of year. No. Not, not likely. So those won't be confusing but, the issue. The three you're mo- the, the the listeners are most likely to hear if they go out at night listening for frogs, 
or spring peepers in a few a few days, uh, chorus frogs, whatever species is in their area, and then now that's I, I'm hearing at my end. I'm hearing squirrel tree frogs. Yeah, me right. too. But that's later, much later. But so, but southern leopards can call throughout much of the year. Yeah. They're triggered by rain events. Yeah, yeah they call they call in hurricane season big time. So we get gopher frogs on the coast. You got southern leopards calling up here, which is neat. So, yes. uh, Joe, what should we be looking for as the breeding season gets underway? What should we be looking for, or just what uh, what's the activity level going on there? I mean, is it? Do we see? Well, I guess probably not. They're secretive, but this is the time of year. Then the then they are breeding. It's very so, soon. soon, and I. I they have to have water, right? If we have a, if, should we have a dry, a drought during the winter? That that can interfere with their breeding. But let's assume that we do get rains and the depressions filled with rainwater. The spring peepers will move to that, and at night they will just go bananas, if you will, uh, trying to outcompete the males, trying to outcompete each other for the females. And if you go out to see those, say that say there's a. a a uh, little pond behind your house, and you go out. It, it takes some effort to see them. You, you'll need a flashlight, and you don't want to just wade into the water and just, and disturb them. You just you want to be respectful of the frogs themselves, right? The spring peepers. But with a little effort, you should be able to see them with a with a flashlight. I have another effort question, Joe. Have you ever seen a peeper egg? No, I've looked see, for how, them. How old are you, Joe? <laughs> I How old are you? <laughs> I haven't either. So that's a, that's a challenge. I haven't either. So but, we need to yeah. work on that. We've seen chorus frog eggs. Yes. And I've seen uh, all the salamander eggs, but have we seen a peeper egg? I no. have a list of things to <laughs> to photograph. You know, I mentioned the uh, the uh, American toads. I would like to photograph and record them if possible. And also I'd like to photograph the spring peeper eggs. But that's sort of at the bottom of the list. I don't hold out much hope for the for that. You've got a few years. <laughs> You're... All right. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with two guests this morning, Tom Mann and Joe McGee. Uh, we have got a caller on the line, so let's uh, go right to the phones, and we say good morning to Will in Greenwood. Will, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. All right, thank you. Uh, this is, uh, I used to go through Vicksburg real late at night, and I think this is for August. It sounds like... It just was just deafening. It just was just maybe hundreds of them. And also, uh, uh, when they had that old bridge, you could just hear, you know, thousands of bullfrogs. But when I went by the uh, other year on the new bridge, I didn't hear any bullfrogs. Did they Did they just die, or what happened to them, do you know? Joe, any thoughts on that? His, fir- his first sound, I think, is what time of year did he, Will, what, a bit, Bill, what time of year did you hear those? That your first question. Uh, it was in the spring, or summer, maybe. I yeah, think, spring I and think summer. Those were yeah, and the bullfrogs that too. But I went through the this last spring. I didn't hear any bullfrogs on the new bridge at Vicksburg. Uh, no, I think it's Yazoo City. Yazoo City. Yeah, the new bridge at Yazoo City. The old bridge was just full of bullfrogs. I don't know. Was there was there still water in the in the area? Yeah, yeah, we had from? a lot of rain. Uh, I, I, maybe they just moved on. I don't know. I was just kind of worried about them. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Tom has a, a, an idea. I do not. 
I'm thinking Katie did for the first thing. Katie did for the first one. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm hearing those in my walks now, which is odd after those freezes, but I'm in small numbers. But I think what he's referring to is early, the, earlier in the year when it's warmer, and um, and they're just deafening. Can't be right. Which in, is in neat. A, it's in neat. The trees. Yeah. Neat. All right, uh, Bill, thanks for your call this morning. <clears throat> wanted to touch on something that I could get, I think, some insight from both Joe and Tom. And I think that both of you do a great job of photographing the things that you're interested in, the studies. And so, uh, Joe, let's uh, let's start with you. And I think we've talked about this before, but talk about some of the challenges of, you know, first of all, finding these creatures and then getting a good photograph of them. Uh, yes, I'd like to say, since Tom mentioned my age, if I can find them, you can find them. <laughs> and, and I'm directing that to listeners. Any, anybody can find those it, with patience. It takes some patience to, uh, to go out and find a course for our calling from a clump of vegetation in the edge of the water. And also, I, let me mention this. There's, a, there's a, some interference that can come up. Folks, this day and age, people are on edge, I've learned. And you have to be careful. You're out, you know, in the middle of nowhere, even in your own backyard, and suddenly a spotlight appears on you. And I've had the Get I've him, had dogs. the sheriff called on me. Oh gosh! But you know, somebody wondered what, what's this, well, what's going on. Yeah. So and I under, so nowadays, if I know specifically where I'm going, what I can give an address or a, a road location, an intersection. I'll call the sheriff's uh, dispatch and tell you know explain myself and tell them what vehicle I'm in and 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 that everything works out fine. But so that's one of the, that's one of the perils. Uh, also, you know the frogs are wet, right? They're in the water or they've just come out of the water. So you get a lot of you, this is referring to the, using a, a flash with a camera, and often they're they can be overexposed. The mm-hmm. photographs are uh, there's overexposure. Uh, so that that's one problem. I've, I'm not a photographer. I mean, I've never been much of a photographer, and I couldn't do it if it weren't for digital cameras. Uh, it just makes it, I couldn't, you know, fumble with film in the dark and so forth. Right. Uh, uh, what about you, Tom? And in your case, it's it's not. I mean, they're great photographs. So I think you brought them in the last time you were here. But it's more of a of a study thing as well. So what are what are some challenges or what well, are the things about uh, your photographing the salamanders? I'm using, right now I'm using, I'm, this is not an ad, I'm using an Olympus Tough camera, which we use in the Galapagos in, underwater. It works, works. It is tough. I've dropped it many times. It's good. The flash is a little bit excessive, which is why in part I often photograph animals in my hands if they'll cooperate, and spiders in my hand because the white of the hand versus the darker animal, it balances out. And I don't get the I don't usually get the excessive flash bounce that way. It's tougher without that white hand in it. Uh, the hand helps. Um, but again, I and I can hold the camera still. That helps too. So you can hold the animal one hand and the camera with the other, and that works. So I'll I'll take credit for that. But we have a lot of we have a lot of neat pictures. All right, uh, Joe, got about a minute left. It's uh, the time of year for the Christmas bird count. Uh, remind listeners what that's all about. Yeah, National Audubon Society has been sponsoring, or it's under the auspices of the National Audubon Society for over oh, 130 years or so. I don't know the exact uh, uh, length of time, but it's over 100 years. And if anyone is interested in participating in a Christmas bird count, there's some 20-odd uh, Christmas bird counts take place in Mississippi. You could go online. We do everything online nowadays, right, get the information. Go online to uh, National Audubon Society Christmas Bird Counts, and a map pops up, and you can see the uh, counts that occur in Mississippi and, and pick one and then contact the local group uh, 
You can do it all online. It's just a way to uh, keep keep tabs on what birds are present uh, in the in the winter time. And a good way to get out and join nature and, and do some good uh, with the citizen science project. So that's uh, yes. we'd like to encourage folks. If uh, and the other thing too, I think is if you're inexperienced, you could probably hook up with a group that knows a little bit more about it and, and kind of ease into it. I would guess. And, and that's right. And while you're out there, you may hear some frogs calling, and you can learn to distinguish. Uh, Spring peepers from white-throated sparrows. They'll call, spring peepers will call in the daytime sometimes. All right. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, and funding is provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show was engineered today by Liz Gill, and our call screener was Charles Arnold. Our podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. So for our guests, Tom Mann and Joe McGee, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.